So we are starting a, a brand new series today. We're going to be going through Exodus, which I have never had the opportunity to work through in any kind of preaching series. So I'm looking forward to doing this. I try to rotate between, um, well, we just finished a, a Lenten series, of course, that was um, during the season of Lent leading up to Easter. But I try to do our larger um, book studies, going through a gospel and going through a New Testament, one of the letters or one of the smaller books of the New Testament, and then back to Old Testament. So um, Exodus, it is for us this time around. This is one of the books of what is called the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible, the first five books of what we call the Old Testament. This is a section of scripture which is considered to be the law. So in, um, for our Jewish brothers and sisters, they would call this, um, there's a law and the prophets. And then sometimes we'll break it down further into wisdom, literature, and history. But in this case, Exodus has um, really sort of two big parts to it. Chapters 1 through 12 are primarily about the Exodus, which just has to do with the departure of the people of God from Egypt. And then um, chapters 19 to 40 have primarily to do with the giving of the law at Sinai. The most um, famous of which part of that would be the Ten Commandments, which we find in Exodus 20. So we're going to be moving through Exodus. Um, It's a large book. We're going to try to do this in a chunk that takes us through um, from now through the summer. And um, I'll have some other filling preachers in there. So I'm working out the final schedule, depending on what they want to do when they're here when I'm gone. So um, I will get that out to you so that you can be reading along. Um, and then I'll, I'll try to get out a reading plan, too. So if you want to follow along. Um, we're primarily going to be focusing for the purpose of this series on the narrative portions of Exodus. We'll jump into a couple parts of the law, but um, to do the, the, what was given in the law at Sinai, just as it was recorded in Exodus, it's also recorded elsewhere, but just to do that would be um, a, a series in and of itself. So when I work through a book, um, I'm sensitive to um, the fact that um, we probably don't want to spend two to three years in one book of the Bible. We'd like to move a little bit faster than that, but I also want to do it in enough of a chunk that we can at least follow a primary thread or a theme through um, the series. So in this series, um, we're talking about how um, pe- the God's people are drawn out to be drawn in. And that's going to be a theme that we use as we move through it. I did post a link on our website, um, on the sermon page, and also on our Facebook page of a great summary video done by Village Church. They, um, you know, what's great about the internet these days is there's a lot of big, big churches who put out some great resources that then you can sort of take and and work with to customize your own stuff. So I, just so you know, I don't um, use anyone else's sermons ever. I always do my own sermons, but I do, um, will use some outlines and things like that if I find them helpful. This video is excellent. It gives a nice... Um, graphical summary of the of Exodus. So I encourage you to watch that. Um, however, I have to say, if you haven't seen it, I really like the um, Prince of Egypt movie that was done a long time ago. Um, yes, there are things that aren't exactly right with Scripture, but for the most part, it gets you into the story in a way that I think is is quite interesting. So it's been a long time since I've watched that. I'll have to do that again. 
But there's two themes that we'll be looking at as we talk about God drawing his people out. Um, And when we talk about being drawn out, we're also going to be talking about being drawn out of sin and how that connects to our lives today and drawn into relationship, both with God primarily and then with each other. And so that corresponds to the two parts of the book, which have to do with the Exodus, God drawing his people out to be Identified as a people separate from the Egyptian nation that they're part of. And also the um, covenant, the law given at Sinai, which I, we sometimes miss this, but this is about being in relationship with God the Father. God says, you are going to be my people. But to do this, we have to, we have, to have some ground rules. <laughs> it's kind of like if you were to take in uh, someone to your home. My... Um, my brother and sister-in-law have recently done this. They probably would be mortified if they knew I was sharing this today. But I don't know a lot of details other than, you know, my sister-in-law works at a high school in Oklahoma. And Oklahoma City. And she um, has a lot of students. She's a coach she works with. And she had a particular student who is a really good student. Um, has zero family support. Has a lot of um, things that have happened and brokenness. And found, um, found herself homeless. And so they um, have taken her in and plan on being her, her parents. I think, I don't know what the legal process they're going to do for any of that. She's almost 18. Um, but if you can imagine bringing someone into your house, you would have to say, okay, there's a few ground rules we need to set here, right? So that we can be in a relationship with each other and not kill each other. And God is doing the same kind of thing in the giving of the law. He's saying, I'm a, I am God, I'm, I'm holy, and if you are going to be my set-apart people, there's some things we need to get straight. And so he gives them the law at Sinai. So there's a big, quick overview of Exodus. Again, I encourage you to watch that video. I think it's, it's really helpful. We're going to begin by reading um, a section from Exodus 1, going into chapter 2. This will be very familiar to some of you. I remember... The old flannel graphs of this in Sunday school. So here we go. Um, Exodus 1 beginning in verse 8. Oh, before I jump in. Because you you have to do this. Because Exodus actually in the Hebrew language. It starts with a word that just connects it right into Genesis. Because if you end Genesis. What you have is God um, taking Joseph who goes to Egypt. Remember, he's sold into slavery by his brothers, but God uses him and puts him in positions of influence. And eventually he gets the attention of Pharaoh because of what God is doing through his ability to interpret dreams. And Joseph is put over basically all the land. He's second in charge next to Pharaoh. He brings his entire family, which includes his dad, uh, Israel, and he brings them and they settle in Egypt. And then that is Genesis. You know, everything's good. They have their own land. They're happy. They're protected. They're fed. And then Exodus jumps into the story um, connecting the two. So here we go. Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, look, the Israelite people are more numerous and more powerful than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them or they will increase And in the event of war, join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to oppress them with forced labor. So just to take a quick break there, just so we kind of understand what's happening here. Um, They had been living in Egypt as free people. 
And the Pharaoh decides they're a threat to us. There's going to be more of them than us pretty soon. So we're going to make them slaves. And so they, that's what's happening here. They built city supply cities, Pithom and Ramses for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread, so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. The Egyptians became ruthless in imposing tasks on the Israelites and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and every kind of field labor. They were ruthless in all the tasks that they imposed on them. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you act as midwives to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, she shall live. But the midwives feared God. They did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they let the boys live. So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and allowed the boys to live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwives come to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded his people, Every boy that is born to the Hebrews you shall throw in the Nile, that you shall let every girl live. Um, just a real quick pause. It's not where I'm going to go in my sermon, but uh, this is a really important connecting piece if you're interested in exploring this further. There's a lot of parallels between this story and the story that happens at the birth of Jesus with the um, order by King Herod to um, kill all the infants who are two years and under. There's a lot of connections here. I don't have time to go into them, but I thought I'd mention that for explore it. Chapter 2. Now a man from the house of Levi went and married a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine baby, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and plastered it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds on the bank of the river. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her attendants walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid to bring it. When she opened it, she saw the child. He was crying and she took pity on him. This must be one of the Hebrews' children, she said. Then his sister said to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse a child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Yes. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child and nurse it for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed it. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and she took him as her son. She named him Moses, because, she said, I drew him out of the water. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this familiar story, for the words of your scripture, and for the way you deliver your people. Help us to be attentive to your voice this morning. And may your Holy Spirit be the one we hear. In your name we pray. Amen. 
When I was a, a kid hearing this story in Sunday school of Mo, baby Moses being put in a basket and set in the reeds in the river, um, I was both um, mortified and intrigued by the story. I remember it was, you know, we edit a lot of the New Test- Old Testament when we teach kids. You have to. I mean, there's, it's, I was tell, when I was doing youth ministry, I said, look, a lot of scripture is rated R. You know, if it, were, if it were just a book being written, we probably wouldn't let you read a lot of it. Let's just be honest. Um, especially a lot of the parts of the Old Testament. So, but this one, for some reason, I remember being taught to me as a child saying, hey, look, Pharaoh wanted to kill all the baby boys. And so this is what Moses' mother did. And so I just remember being extremely disturbed and mortified that any person would want to kill babies. Much less a lot of babies. Much less baby boys, because I was a boy, so that seemed really unfair to me. And then, of course, the story has got a happy ending. I was overjoyed when baby Moses is rescued. But then, of course, somewhere in the recess of mine was always a question, what about the other boys? Right? It's not necessarily a story that has completely happy ending. But it is a, a kind of rags to riches tale, if you will. One of those that we hear about in our fairy tales because Moses, who is um, as a baby, is marked for death. He becomes the a prince. That's why the, the movie is called, the animation movie of, of the story is called Prince of Egypt. Because he's adopted by a princess, by Pharaoh's daughter. You know, it's interesting, all the times I've heard this story, I don't know if I really paid that much attention to the compassion that we see in Pharaoh's daughter. In fact, usually when I was a kid and Old Testament stories were being told, there were people who were often elevated as sort of heroes. In fact, sometimes we call them Bible heroes. And as I've gotten older, I I realize sort of the danger of that. Because the Bible doesn't lift up human beings as being amazing examples for us. It's a story of how God uses broken human beings to do amazing things on our behalf. It's God's story. So we always have to be careful because there are really no perfect heroes in the Old Testament scripture. But that being said, I remember a lot of time being spent talking about Moses' mother, who's not named here, and sister, and how, what their part in the story is, but not so much about Pharaoh's daughter. Now Moses' mother, I mean, she had the plan of hiding Moses, of putting him in this basket and putting him into the river. She has to do it for three months, which, wow, you know, with a, an, an infant, if you're trying to keep them from crying and from people hearing it for three months, that's a challenge, but you can understand how at some point it just becomes absolutely impossible to keep him hidden and his life's in danger. So she comes up with this plan to hide him in this basket and stick him in the river. And now that I'm older, I kind of go, what kind of plan is that? Like, what was her end game? It's really kind of an interesting thing. I mean, the rule was you had to throw them into the Nile. So I don't know if she was trying to create some kind of plan where she could say, well, I put him in the Nile. You know, I bet, you know, I'm going to go get him back out or something. I, I don't know. She, she puts his sister to keep eyes on him. So it's not like she is simply abandoning him to exposure, which was 
something that was practiced and unfortunately at times is still practiced when people have unwanted children. Simply leave them out until they die. As horrible as that sounds. That was clearly not her plan. She's, she's watching over him. She wants to keep track of him. But the scriptures don't really tell us what her plan is. Now, when I, again, when I was a kid, and even in some of the movies I've seen and stuff, I get this image of this basket with a baby sort of bobbing down the river and going down. But that's not what the scriptures say. They say that he's placed in the reeds. And if you spend any time around any of our rivers, or I've never been to the Nile, but I imagine it's very similar. If you have a place where there's a lot of stuff growing inside of the river, we're not talking about a fast-moving current. And that doesn't allow a basket to move through. So she's putting him somewhere intentionally into a spot. And so, of course, that brings up the question of, um, did she plan the spot knowing that this was a place where the... um, where so the royalty would come and bathe, which makes a lot of sense. A lot of times they would have, in some of these palaces and along the Nile and stuff, they would have steps and things would go down into the river. So perhaps she was intentionally putting it in that kind of a place, which is a huge risk if you think about it, because you don't, if she's just hoping that some official of the Egyptian court will come see the baby, you would think that most of them would be pretty loyal to Pharaoh. And if they know it's a Hebrew child, which maybe she's hoping they wouldn't know that, I don't know, then they would probably want to kill the child. So I would say that um, while there's some things maybe to elevate in terms of of Moses' mother's plan, it's not really so much a plan as it is a prayer. I mean, it's an act of faith, and that's how... um, God's people have often looked at this, is that this is her act of faith, trusting that God is going to do something with the baby. Now the sister, um, she's the one who has to carry out the plan. She's got to get the basket there and watch the basket. And then she sees, of course, this princess who's coming to bathe. And I mean, she's, she's got some gumption. I mean, that's a fact that people have lifted up about her. And that's why she's often the Bible hero in this story. Because here she is, a, a Hebrew girl, and she's watching over this basket for who knows how long. And you can imagine that when a princess comes to bathe and her attendants are walking on the shore, translate bodyguards, right? Um, you're probably not supposed to be there hiding in the reeds. And that's where she is, keeping watch. So she sees Pharaoh's um, daughter, this princess, see the basket, ask her maid to go get it, bring it back, open it up, take out a baby that's crying, have compassion on it. And she takes a chance. And it obviously comes out of hiding and comes toward the princess and says, "Um, would you like me to find a Hebrew midwife? Now, it's interesting because the princess says, this must be one of the Hebrew children. So for whatever reason, she's able to recognize, probably because most people aren't discarding baby boys. So I imagine she puts two and two together and figures this out. And so, of course, the, the, the story goes that the sister comes and approaches the princess, um, which I imagine could have been an opportunity for her to have her head removed at that point. But she gets the, um, the princess to say, yeah, go find a Hebrew midwife. So, of course, she goes and gets the mom. And comes over, the mom gets paid, she gets to nurse baby Moses, but she still has to give him up. Because once he's old enough, he goes to live with the princess. 
Let's talk just a minute about Pharaoh's daughter, this princess, because that's the one I said that I, I've not really thought much about her role in this, to be honest. And it really caught me this time. First of all, the scriptures make it clear that she knows that this is one of the children that her father, the king, said had to be put to death. So she's not doing this out of ignorance. She opens the basket, she sees the baby, she sees it crying, and it has, she has compassion on the child. You have to wonder what would happen if her dad found out what she was doing. But of course, the beauty of the story is that there is one person, one person in Egypt who could save this child. It's probably her. It's probably the Pharaoh's daughter. She decides to adopt him anyway, despite this law that her father has passed. You see, Pharaoh's immigration policy dealing with the Israelites was to keep Egypt looking like the Egyptians. He doesn't want the majority of the people to be Israelites. So he's trying these progressive things to make this happen until he comes up with this really cruel edict. And sometimes policies sound one way when you're not looking in the face of those who are affected by them. And in this case, for Pharaoh's daughter, it's the face of a baby boy. And suddenly, it has a whole different look. God will remind the Israelite people many times when he gives the law later that when dealing with the strangers and the aliens among them, that they are to have compassion and be just because they were once slaves in Egypt. So Pharaoh's daughter, in that sense, becomes the example for the Israelite people of how you are to treat those who are not part of your people. Now, of course, as readers of the Bible, we know what Pharaoh's daughter doesn't know. It's not really Pharaoh's daughter who's the hero who saves the child, is it? God is the one who ordains this. This is part of God's plan. This is how God works. God is saving his people. He's saving an individual baby, and he's going to use this baby to save his people, which is part of the story that we're going to be looking into. Moses, as a baby, is drawn out of the river by Pharaoh's attendant and Pharaoh's daughter, and then he is delivered into the household, and he's delivered by God, not Pharaoh's daughter. This story that we read in Exodus, this is still our story. This is why it's so important for us to spend time going back into this. Because this is how God works with his people. And how God has worked with his people again and again. God drawing us out and delivering us. And then God drawing us in to relationship with God and with others. Freedom from the bondage of sin. That's how Paul describes it, what Jesus does for us. He says, you were slaves. You weren't slaves to Egypt, though. You were slaves to sin. And Jesus freed you from that bondage. He delivered you from that. And that was not something you could have done on your own. You were just as helpless as a baby. God did that work. Jesus did the work 
on the cross. And then we respond to that work through the initiation of the Holy Spirit so that we can say, even when we believe in faith, it's because the Holy Spirit did something inside of us so that we can believe God initiates all of it. God does all of it in us. And then we participate in that deliverance. Just as we will read about Moses and the people participating in God's deliverance of them from Egypt. God is doing the work, but we participate in it. And so for us as Christians, we participate in this deliverance by being God's witnesses to those who are still in bondage, God's messengers to those still caught in slavery. And God continues to draw his people to himself, to draw us into relationship with God and others. In Christian circles, we call this sanctification. We say there's this lifelong process. God started it. He called us. He saved us. He delivered us from that bondage to sin. But it's not like someone just flipped the light switch and all of a sudden, hey, perfect Christian, got it all right, doing everything good, no sin in my life. That's not how it works. So we call the process of being coming more and more like who God called us to be as God draws us in to that life and closer to him. We call that process sanctification. And in some ways, I feel like it's not that much different than the Israelites wandering in the desert for all the years that they wandered. In the gospel message is that we need to be reminded that we too were aliens and strangers to God. We were aliens and strangers to God. We were separated from him. We were enemies of God, some scriptures say. But that God loved us when we were unlovable. And as hard as it is, that's still the calling that we have as Christians. To love those around us even when they are unlovable. Let's pray. Father, we have to thank you for being our deliverer. We could not, of our own, do what needed to be done. So we're so grateful for the way you work in our life. Lord, you know us inside and out. You know our struggles and our brokenness. God, I pray that you would help us to be more like the people you're calling us to be. Father, through the power of your Holy Spirit, continue to draw us into relationship with you and to loving those around us. Give us the strength to do it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.